Hello and welcome to Rare View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 15. I'm delighted to say hello and welcome to my guest, James Clark, and I shall move straight on to our chat where James will be able to do a much better job of introducing himself than I can. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Could you tell uh, the listeners then uh, a little bit about yourself and your current position? Sure. I am the PR manager for Toyota and Lexus in the UK. Uh, So I look after uh, all of our uh, media relations for both brands, uh, uh, both lifestyle, automotive, uh, the whole suite. Uh, and indeed, uh, a number of other geographies as well. Uh, as ever with big companies, you tend to have odd geographies. So I, I have things like Cyprus and Malta uh, in my in my quiver as well for historical reasons. Well, they're just off the coast. Absolutely, just around the corner. <laughs> Saving those for February, March. I <laughs> absolutely yes. Very very important uh, business meetings will have to happen probably late February in Cyprus. Mm. Sensible choice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you've uh, been in that role, though, not that long. No, I'm new boy. So uh, I started at the end of August. Um, so this is, what, coming to month four. Um, so it's been a heck of a time to join, really. Um, I was going to say, it's been really quiet. On the front. <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing's really been happening, has it? No, no. no it's just a very quiet year, 2016. Um, <laughs> you're right. Uh, I mean, I think from a uh, from a selfish point of view, brilliant time to join the company, uh, given all of the new product that's coming from from both brands. Um, so a very exciting time, far better than arriving at a car company that isn't doing anything. Um, mm. And then, of course, you know, there's all sorts of other things going on in the world from uh, the automotive uh, sport area where we're very busy. Um, uh, most recently yesterday with the launch of the, the WRC Challenge. Um, and then there's the wider world, which, you know, as, as you and Alan have talked about many times, has been um, – somewhat busy for automotive companies uh, in the UK this year. Yes, yes, quite. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a bit, yeah, as you said, it's better to join busy because you're, you're in at the deep end. There's no, uh, no nerves can get in the way at that point. You've just got to get on with it. So, Exactly. I haven't had time to get nervous yet. I think when everything goes quiet and, and I get to look back at what I've done for the last couple of months, I'll probably start chewing my fingernails, but <laughs> sort of keep going. <laughs> I want to go back in the mists of time <laughs> to see, to find out how you first got interested in cars and uh, was anybody instrumental in that and, and what form of interest did it take? Okay. Can you remember? I can. I remember very clearly. Um, in a very modern uh, way, uh, it was my mother rather than my father, actually. So my, my mother was a, uh, what we would now term a petrol head, no doubt about it. Um, mm-hmm. Off the top of my head, XK120 drop head, MPA, uh, Healy 106, variously. And while she had all those things, my father couldn't drive, so she had to teach him. Can you imagine you know, in the 1970s, late 70s, being taught to drive by your wife? You know. Was, oh, wow, that must have... Uh, yeah. Well, either he was completely at ease with himself, or... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that never happened. Um, so, my... my my dad getting a, a, a minivan um, while my mother still had the 106 once he All right. the driving test. So so it was her. She, uh, I'm not sure she had much understanding of the things, but she had an enormous love for herring about in them and, and trying to look good. Mm-hmm. 
And that was combined with uh, my uncle Ray, who always had fabulous cars, Aston Martins and Porsches and all sorts of things, um, who was a proper Terry Thomas-style character. And I used to <laughs> stay with him and my aunt down in Devon, and he'd pick me up from the New Forest and drive me pre-motorway down to the West Country in a you know V8 Vantage or whatever he happened to have at the time whilst smoking his cheroot out of the window. Um, <laughs> Uh, so how how I couldn't get into cars, you know, I didn't have much choice really. No, well, it sounds like it was a totally dreadful way to be introduced to the mold as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although, to be fair, after all, when my mother passed away a few years ago, she um, the last car she had was a Volvo 740. So times change, you know. Yes, yes, there is that. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a the other end of the scale. <laughs> yeah, and, and a fine, solid, and well put together thing it was too. But um, but yeah, it wasn't quite the SK120. Mm. <laughs> so um, did this interest? Well, it was going to follow you through school, but did it manifest itself in any way through school and things uh, like that? Were you in the corner scribbling cars, or were you taking, or, or, or had you got it in your mind to get into the car industry in some way at school? You know, I. The cars, yes, the industry, no. So, you know, I was sitting down with Auto Trader with the ink coming off on my hands from the age of about 15 with a felt tip circling things. <laughs> um, they are painful memories because when I think of the things I circled and what they cost and what they'd be worth now, it's, it, you know, it's horrific. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's, so, that no good can come of that. Exactly. But I, I was a bit weird because, you know, when I hit 16, 17, my friends are all desperate to get a, you know, a Chevette with wide tires. I was busy reading about Vic Elford on the Targa Florio. Um, I, I sort of got into the, the myth of cars and racing mm. uh, before I got into the metal, if that makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, by the time I was uh, legally in a position to, to drive a car and, and be able to afford one, I was steeped in, in particularly sports car racing, which I'd come to love, uh, more so than, than F1. So it was a kind of weird thing, really, um, and sort of did it backwards. Normally, it goes the other way around, doesn't it? You, you just concentrate on driving everywhere sideways till you're about 25 and, and then pick up a book. But I managed to do it the other way. <laughs> well, it sounds like you had relatives that did the sideways for you. Yes, that, that would help. <laughs> yeah, that would help. So um, did you go on to college or university after school? Was... Uh, yeah, uh, I went up to Durham, um, uh, uh, although I didn't stay. Um, uh, I just got itchy feet, um, which is something I thought I might regret, but it turned out I haven't. It turned out to be an absolutely the right choice, but you never know that, do you? And how much yeah. of this luck, we will never know. Um, but yeah, with, with no uh, clear idea of, uh, of anything automotive, other than the fact that I'd already decided by then, obviously, that I wanted to drive at Le Mans. But uh, I think we've all decided that at some point, haven't we? Probably with Quite. the same result. <laughs> In my case, a monumental lack of talent plus no cash. Yes, yes, I'm I'm very familiar. I am very much in that camp. <laughs> exactly. Um, so no, journalism was, was uh, the, the thing that attracted me and, um, uh, you know, that became the path I, I followed. Uh, but again, with no clear idea of doing it in an automotive sense. So do you... you in do you enjoy, or did you enjoy, or do you still enjoy writing, or was it the investigation side of things? How no, was, why journalism? Um, I think it was partly the writing um, for sure. I've always loved doing that, but I think partly also a bit back to that thing about you know the myth of motoring before the metal. I quite enjoyed the whole kind of myth of journalism and Fleet Street and the stories and the characters and 
the history of the thing and it felt very much like uh, I mean, obviously I started on local papers before I got up there, but mm. felt like a kind of exclusive club to aim for, not in terms of achievement, just in terms of, gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful to know what it's like to be on the other side of that particular door? It was generally yeah. the door to a pub, I discovered, but uh, <laughs> uh, but still, uh, yeah. So it was one of those weird things. My big plan uh, had been to get an old Mark II Land Rover and drive it, uh, Series II Land Rover, and drive it uh, down through Egypt with a friend um, uh, and then down through Central Africa. So I started okay. a local paper to save up to do that. Yeah, Loved it so much, I thought, well, maybe I'll have a go at working for the big regional paper and keep saving up. So I did that and kept saving up. And then I thought, if I don't do Fleet Street, I'll never know what it's like. So I, I had a tilt at that, and, and that worked. And I can remember one day sitting bolt upright in the Sunday Times newsroom X years after I'd started that journey thinking, hang on a minute, I'm supposed to be somewhere in Somalia in a Land Rover. I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> So um, for you, what do you think makes good um, – I mean, this was sort of a question I was going to come on to later, but I mean, it's, it's popped up now, I think. What do you think makes good writing from a journalist's point of view? Wow, that's, that's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I think it depends very much on what kind of journalism we're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're very different, very different requirements for, for different things. But I think from the automotive point of view, what I particularly love, and I'm just speaking as a punter and a, you know, a user of automotive media uh, rather than as a, a an automotive PR bot, mm-hmm. it's narrative for me. What I absolutely love is when people form a, a really clear narrative and tell a story uh, around a car or an event or a piece of history or whatever it is. Um, and obviously, that's that's not something you can do in a three car group test, particularly. Um, but I think there are still plenty of places within automotive journalism where people are given the freedom to do that. And one of the great joys of the explosion of online media for me has been that from an automotive point of view, so many of the sites I love have got that at their heart. They're not about, you know, let's test the latest X and say whether we think it's any good, because let's be honest, there's bigger and better places where that happens. So they've got to look for new angles and interesting ways to tell a story. Mm. And I think that's been an absolute joy. Uh, so that's, that's what I love more than anything. That ties back to your, your love of the, the myth yeah. of the, the, you know, the ideal and the, and the books you've read and stuff like that. You, you ingrained yourself in the longer form. I think so, yeah. So I think I, I can I can see yeah, a, a, a distinct connection there. But yeah, no, it it is. Um, there are uh, some very good places online and and the occasional magazine article where you do get uh, people to are able to go deeper. Yeah, I, and, and I, it isn't. Oh, what's the what's the the plastic feel like here? You know, it is. It is a bit more than that. Yeah, which don't get me wrong is is important. I mean, I, I think you know one of the things about automotive journalism is that in many cases it's also consumer journalism. So yes, uh, yeah. that really matters, and I don't detract from it. But I think one of the things I've noticed in the last couple of years is I think things are coming full circle. So the initial rush in print to compete with online or to balance the two was about being first and being sharpest and, you know, bah, 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 and get it all out there. Mm. I think in a number of cases now, uh, particularly in print, that slightly longer form narrative, you know, if it's good, we'll give it the space approach is coming back. 
um, as print magazines differentiate, uh, differentiate themselves from some online. So uh, it makes me very happy. I, I enjoy it. It's one of the reasons I've always loved Motorsport Magazine, um, which, you know, is in some ways wonderfully old-fashioned. And, you know, uh, mm. my Uncle Ray I mentioned earlier, absolutely classic motorsport reader, you know, salmon-coloured trousers, cheroot, tweed jacket after Martin, um, <laughs> the whole lot. Uh, and it, it's one of the reasons I think, you know, Nick Trott's got such a, a, a big, tough, but brilliant job ahead of him when he gets there uh, in trying to modernise it whilst not losing what makes it really special. And yeah. I, I think that's one of the toughest jobs out there, but also what a thing if you get it right, you know? Um, so uh, I think Nick's the man for it as well. So anyway, I digress. No, no, is that, that's right. Because, I mean, that was something I was going to, to ask you in a personal as well as professional viewpoint of the, of the – um, explosion of online options of content as well as the print and media and and no one seems to have worked out what a winning formula is which I think is uh, good for us who consume it but also it's not good uh, at the same time it's, it's a little bit it feels a little bit wild westy yeah um, I, there's uh, you mentioned before the people rushing to get stuff out quickly and you can see certain sites definitely following that path. They are they are charging down that that line, and I fear that's a race to the bottom um, because things then don't get checked perhaps as well as they should. Um, uh, and it, you, you know the the what you are absorbing is not perhaps what they would want you to if they were able to take the time and stuff. I mean from from a from a professional point of view. Then, um, it, does it make your job harder? Actually, um, considering there is now a, such a variety of uh, content producers and the way they produce that content, or does that make it easier because you can put people in not in boxes, but you can say, "Oh, well, that's perfect for that sort of uh, information we want to get out." Whilst this is perfect for this sort of information we want to get out. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I- I think the answer is it, it doesn't make it harder, but I think the thing that uh, to remember in this is that we also, I'm speaking to Adrian Lexus here, but it's true of others, have become content providers in this yes. world. So uh, I can only speak for my particular team, but we produce films, a huge amount of social media, uh, written articles, blog posts, huge amount of stuff most of which we would not have done 10 years ago, quite aside from the platforms not being there. But, you know, we were there to facilitate content creation by the media. Mm. So on one level, we've sort of become an element of that media. Um, I think this is one of the great unknowns for the whole industry. And by the industry, I include uh, producers like us, uh, automated manufacturers like us, and the media. No one's sure when all these plates stop spinning what the world is going to look like. Because at the same time, you've then got... uh, Automotive media who are looking to provide content for us uh, as a you know as a business arrangement, quite right. Mm. They need their revenue streams, whilst also writing independent pieces. It's very complex um, and ever changing. The thing that underpins it all for me personally is that whatever happens, whatever platforms emerge, however all this shakes out, the thing that cannot be lost is the independent voice of the expert writer. Mm. I can spend huge sums of money on publicizing uh, a new Toyota or a new Lexus. 
Uh, I can do that in a number of very clever ways. I can make sure a lot of people see it. Uh, I can make sure there's lots of social engagement with it. That's all great. But the bottom line is if I say it's great, everybody knows I've got a dog in that fight. You know, it's not that they won't believe me, but my opinion carries a relatively low amount of weight because I'm paid to say that. Whereas if a road tester from Autocar says it's great, it's great. And that is the thing that I think uh, sits at the heart of all this and is the absolute value stream that media have. And it's vital to companies like us as well. Uh, I think there's a perception often out there that we would love it if we could control everything media-wise. You know, the more control, the better. And it would be a disaster for us. You know, there are times when, you know, somebody says something unpleasant about one of your, your cars. It's not nice. But in the long run, you know, it's a good thing that that independent voice has to be there uh, in order that customers or potential customers have a source they can go to that they trust uh, and that they believe. So we'll see where it all ends up. I mean, you might be aware of one of the things I've done since I've got here is launched a scheme to uh, give young unpublished automotive writers the chance to write on our blog pages. Yeah, I just saw that recently, yes. Um, and that's really back to what I've just said. I mean, we value that genuinely and we want to help the next generation get on because it's obviously a shrinking pool. It's harder to get into. Mm. Uh, so we'll pay them like we'd pay without naming names, but you know any big name you care to mention who might write for us, uh, we'll pay them at the same rate. And we think that's really important. We think we need to do our bit to make sure that in 10, 15, 20 years' time, there is still uh, a group of expert, difficult, sometimes annoying, sometimes funny, charming automotive writers out there Yeah, say what they think. Yeah, no, I, I think there's there's several things in that answer there that I, I find particularly interesting. Uh, one of them is the it is a concern for me as a consumer that print magazines are it it is like I said it's wild west so it's a bit of a battle to retain readership um and it's ensuring i mean i know i can see magazines are working very hard to ensure that they have that um it's not neutrality but that independence so that when they say something you can trust what they're saying and it doesn't get overawed where they go oh well we desperately need advertising as well i mean it's such a difficult uh, i'm hoping to get on a few um magazine a uh, few more magazine editors because i i think that's in in the whole motoring world i think that happens that has to be one of the most insane making jobs out there because of the pressure that they must be under all the time um but the but another thing uh, i thought was interesting there is the way that your that toyota are going to pay uh, a proper rate and it's not an exposure thing um anything like that for these these uh unpublished um writers and stuff and that and that's great to hear because as you said we do need we do need excellent reviewers and stuff i watched evo's uh car of the year video last night wasn't it great uh, and i'm sitting there and i'm i'm watching these people and i'm i'm listening to th- what they're saying and i'm going oh dear there goes the confidence again in the couple of reviews i've done and but, but at least there's you know, there's somebody that you can look up to and you go, oh, right, that's how they did that. That's how they got that point over and things like that. And that's very important that we aren't, down the line, it's not just 
a robot or almost the, you know people regurgitating the same thing you've got to have personal opinion in there as well I agree. one of the things that absolutely grinds my gears is this idea of people being offered exposure in return for their work you wouldn't get away with it in any other work walk of life you know if you find a plumber and say come around and fix my sink uh, and in return for that i'll tell everybody you're a good plumber you know yeah. what it's going to say to you and it won't take him very long to say it i, I really feel that it's entirely wrong and it's not just an automotive thing it happens in every form of journalism at the moment um you know it's hard enough frankly to get into the industry without producing good work and then people saying no names mentioned but there are blogs out there non-automotive ones i hasten to add in the news sphere who Mm. famously don't pay their writers uh the exposure doesn't pay the bills so good writing is a is a skill uh, it's a profession it takes time and effort and experience and it's worth money in in my view i mean i would say that as a lifelong journalist but <laughs> as long as i'm in well, that's the way i'll be here anyway no absolutely i think it's 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 a good thing and it needs to happen more it needs definitely needs to happen more um do you think at the talking of the the, the it's not new now because we've had it for a few years, but the way that there is these various options as far as media goes, was there anything that you've been a bit surprised at um, in in the fact that it's been adopted by the consumer or by the people watching, reading, listening more than others? You mean in terms of platforms or? Yes, platforms, sorry, yeah. Um, it's an interesting one. I mean, I- they're ever-changing. And, of course, you know, as we sit here now, we've just seen a new one launched in, in Drive Tribe, and everybody's watching that very closely to see what happens. Um, I think one of the, the issues for me is not so much how much people use them, but from the point of view of our customers or potential customers, it's the way they engage with them that's really interesting for me. Mm-hmm. So we spend a, a lot of time and money and investing good people here to make sure that our engagement with people socially uh, in social media is top grade and fast. So if you ask us a question, you'll get an answer. Um, uh, That's been really interesting for me because I've seen in a number of cases in the last three or four months, people take journeys from hating a given car that we make to not hating it or from uh, being convinced that, you know, black is white to, to understanding differently I think there's a willingness out there for people to engage if they are uh, conversed with honestly and openly. Mm. Uh, and that's the bit that's cheered me up most, really. I, I, we have a group of people here we call community managers who are out there on social media doing that every day, every night. Uh, and we have a, a sort of meeting with them most mornings. What's happened overnight? What happened yesterday? What do we need to know about? Anything we need to do? And they're always so full of joy and, and sort of bubbles, you know, oh, I had this great conversation with this guy who, you know, he didn't like Priuses at all. And I showed him this and da, 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 and we took the mickey out of each other. And it's a, we can engage directly in a way that we couldn't before. And of course that's the, yeah. the famous issue uh, with social media, but being able to do that is not the be all and end all. I think it's how you do it uh, and how you present yourself in doing it. And it's something that Toyota has done really well long before I got here. I claim no credit for it at all. Um, but it's been the single thing probably that's impressed me most. 
Street. No, I, I have to say, and this is not uh, sucking up to Toyota in any way, but the, the way that uh, the engagement on social media is is, is very good. Um, I've, I've seen it happen with other people and um, equally been excellent when I've asked questions or made comments or anything like that. So it, there are a few out there that could learn uh, and could... Um, have a look at the how that's being done and maybe pick things that are pertinent to their culture and things like that in their businesses. But uh, it, 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 it's, it's great to see because it, it gives a human side to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's genuine as well. So, the, you know, the people that do that are, you know, right here embedded with our team all the time. So you are talking to the heart of the business. Um, and I guarantee you once in a while, you know, my phone will ring at 10.30 at night and it will be one of the community managers saying, really sorry to bother you at home having this conversation i don't know the answer to this and you know they've got carte blanche to pick up the phone to anybody within this business they feel they need to speak to and see mm-hmm. those answers and and the business sees the uh, the benefit in doing that um i don't know if it's the same elsewhere but it, it certainly gets good results for us yeah mm. so why did you decide to go for this job then <laughs> um do you know what it's it, Something that a lot of friends of mine in the automotive world told me I should have done 10 years ago. Uh, and I said, yeah, 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 and didn't listen. And it turns out I was uh, an idiot and they were entirely right, <laughs> as in so many things. Um, uh, always had the love of cars and indeed motorbikes, which is my other passion. Um, so, I, Sorry, just to, just to stop you there, just one second. I find that so strange. There's so many people that I chat to. That you, I'm, I'm talking to them on Twitter and everything like that. Cause look at me now. I'm talking to them on Twitter. Um, no, I'm on Twitter with them and we're having conversations. And they're all about the cars. And then all of a sudden they'll just turn to me like, I had no idea that you like bikes as well. I, I don't personally because I, I, I don't want to. Yeah. I could see myself getting obsessed. Yeah. And uh, it's bad enough with cars. <laughs> if you ask my wife. <laughs> so I couldn't go down that route. But I am so surprised that there are that if someone likes a car they probably will like a bike as well it's interesting isn't it i i can remember having long conversations with with alex goyne john quirk and people like that back in the day about the cars v bikes argument the endless argument um which goes on forever but what is true ironically is that if you find people who love both and then ask them which they'd keep if you force them to give one up pretty much all of them would keep the bike I shouldn't say that, but that generally is the, the view. It's a slightly deeper addiction. It's slightly sillier. It makes slightly less sense. Um, uh, and I think I know what the reason is, but that's probably one for another time. <laughs> well, I would imagine it's because the experience is a bit more uh, all-encompassing. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably right. I, I think it's the fact that you are physically part of the ability to make progress on a motorcycle in a way that, whether you're driving an LFA or an Austin Allegro, there is still a degree of separation between you and the vehicle. You know, you have mm. levers and switches and pedals that you pull, push and turn, and the car will do things. And generally speaking, the better the car, the more linear that, that relationship is. But on a bike, it's it's a more physical thing. You know, if you if you try and make the bike go around a corner by turning the handlebars, you'll go through a hedge. You know, you you have to commit your body to do your bit of that job. So there's a bit of a partnership there. So yeah, uh, sorry, this is a, a digression from your question, Andrew. But no, sorry, it was my fault. I interrupted you there. <laughs> uh, so I should have done it a long time ago, and um, I didn't. 
this opportunity arose very left field. Um, uh, so Scott Brownlee, who's my boss and will be well known to, to a lot of your listeners, um, who is the communications boss here at TGB. Um, Scott approached me and said, uh, I think you would enjoy this and be good at it. But it's a slightly, you know, strange 90 degree turn career wise. And the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. There were no logical reasons for doing it. So if you look at, you know, somebody's CV and, you know, uh, human resources people will tell you how your CV should go. This mm. is a bizarre decision. But the more I talked to my wife about it, the more excited I got about it, the more I kind of regressed to a nine year old on one level without, I hope, losing my professionalism. Just became really clear that. <laughs> it was probably time I did something I loved again rather than did what I should be doing in order to, you know, trundle along the old career thing. So, mm. um, so I took the plunge and did it and absolutely genuinely have loved it every day since. Even when I have a really bad day, I have a bad day about cars. Yes. So, that yeah. will make still- the bad day be not quite as bad. Exactly. It's still a win. So, um, so I wish I'd listened to my wiser friends, which is all of them, uh, back in the day. Uh, but here I am, uh, and very happy, and, um, you know, uh, fingers crossed, a few years ahead of me. You've been, well, Toyota, and yourself particularly, has been busy since you started. Um, I presume that busyness will continue for the foreseeable future for you, mm. um, bar the break for festive times and holidays <laughs> yes i know we keep, we keep launching cars and, and and race projects and things i mean I these think, these pesky business things that get in the way i know it's, uh, it's such a pain isn't it um i think that's right i mean obviously one of the real privileges of this job is is that it's toyota and lexus which are very different animals um mm. uh, and on sort of different paths with different needs and so on but what that means for me is that uh, I've got twice as much to do, but it's all good stuff. So I think to take them in order from a UK point of view, with Toyota, you've got firstly the huge motorsport effort, you know, whether it's uh, world endurance car or rally or touring cars or various other things. So that's all ongoing. In terms of the road cars, it's an exciting time for us. I mean, I think there's been a gap in the UK since the demise of us uh, selling MR2 and Sleeker and Supra here. You know, there'd always been those fun driver's cars in the lineup. And that, that disappeared for a while. GT86 came, which is a fabulous thing, and um, that filled some of that gap. Uh, you've heard about the what's described as the hot Yaris. So mm-hmm. bring us back into that area of, of the driver's car market. Uh, and then, obviously, um, according to the media, there'll be something else coming along as well that fills another one of those gaps. Uh, but obviously, I wouldn't know anything about that. Uh, no, obviously, no. Exactly. Um, so it's a really exciting time for Toyota in the UK as we uh, as we return to some areas of the market where we've been absent for a while. And then with Lexus, uh, on a whole other level, actually, you know, Lexus has been going through a, an enormous change uh, in the last couple of years. 2017, we'll see that accelerate like you can't believe. Um that's based on the product, as it always is in this industry. Good product is the driver, and we've got that. But Lexus is becoming much bolder. It's a lot more self-confident, and it's you know it's a very young company. It's a bit of an adolescent, and I think it's just really come to the point where it understands what and who it is. You know, when it looks at itself mm-hmm. in the mirror. So LC, which we launched a couple of weeks ago in Seville, uh, is a real weather vane for what's happening with Lexus. You know, dynamically different to the competition very high quality, 
not another uh, not another German competitor, but a Lexus. Um, mm. uh, stands on its own, looks different, feels different, does different things, and presents a different option. So 2017 will see a number of big changes, uh, I think, for, for Lexus in terms of product, uh, and 18, 19, further down the line. Um, so it's a really great time to be here. You're right, mad busy, but for all the right reasons, um, you know, uh, really good busy. Well, that that just in that uh, quick overview you've given there, you've you've allowed the listeners to understand the breadth of what you do. But for um, but for anyone who's not really aware, what exactly does a, a PR manager do on a more day to day basis? And for this, for the role of the uninitiated and for the um, for the dumb, I will play this part, and it won't be much of a stretch. Um, so. It's, <laughs> Um, could you explain a bit more, you know, obviously without trade secrets and all that, but more of the type of things that make up the PR manager's job? Because we obviously see the end product where you are in Seville and here are the cars and I'm in a fab hotel, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm sure- quite a few steps to get there, I'm, I'm guessing, <laughs> and probably not as glamorous steps. <laughs> No, I think it's like the, you know, the famous thing of the duck on the water, you know, the, the paddling underneath is, is quite frantic for the serenity of what appears on top. Um, yeah, effectively, my job is to look after the reputation of the two brands, mm-hmm. uh, to help people engage with them, uh, be interested in them. Uh, I, my bit of the business, I do that through media. Um, so I'm not a marketeer. I'm not involved in advertising uh, or market research or, or that sort of thing. Uh, so effectively, uh, we have a, a diary of things ahead of us, whether they be car launches or plans or events or things we need to achieve. You know, uh, people don't understand X about hybrid. We want them to. How can we solve that problem? So we have all those things we need to do. We plan early how we're going to do those, and there's lots of different ways uh, from – events, to uh, giving cars to the media, uh, to car launches, whatever it might be. Um, and we try to ensure that, you know, at the end of uh, a year, we've ticked those boxes. But of course, it's a rolling thing. Yeah. Running alongside that is the reactive piece. So the press office, which which reports to me, is there to uh, help the media answer their questions, equip them with things if they need it. Uh, sometimes that's logistical help. Sometimes it's information um, we also are responsible for uh, the Toyota blogs as opposed to the Toyota website. So the car that you uh, the website you would go to if you're interested in buying a car uh, belongs to marketing. Uh, mm-hmm. The Toyota blogs and social media pages they, they belong to us. So that's about engagement uh, with people. Okay. So all of that, um, and then uh, obviously the press fleet and the historic fleet, uh, in which I take a huge interest. Uh, I think you know I'm a bit of a, an off-road fan, so I think we have a severe lack of old Land Cruisers, which I need to solve. Um, I think that's a wise yeah. and sensible decision, and I applaud it. <laughs> and hope that it comes to fruition. It should. It, it is a thing that should need to be. It's a standing joke in my office that it's you know I'm busy, but. Anybody walks around my desk about one in four times, I'll be looking at an advert for, a, you know, an FJ somewhere in, you know, Southern Ireland or something. <laughs> uh, 
But we need to make sure that, you know, those are there for uh, use by media or indeed use by us, um, which goes back to what we said at the beginning about now looking at producing our own content, which we've been doing for some years, but we're doing more of every year, uh, working with partner uh, agencies and indeed in-house staff. So lots of films, lots of video, uh, lots of interactive social media. So it's all about... Are you, sorry, just to, just to ask a quick question. Uh, there's clearly some advantages from producing your own content. Do you see any risks with that? Um, not, not, I think, risks that we haven't uh, dealt with in that we don't produce films which say, hey, this car's great and it's better than that car. Mm. Uh, there'd be no point for the reasons we've already discussed. Yeah. What we often do is, so if you take something like GT86, um, which is a really good example, so we don't go and do a road test of a GT86. What we do is we make, as you know, five or six special liveried ones which look great and tell a bit of Toyota's racing history. Uh, and then we go and film those doing interesting things because people like the film. Same reason you and I, you know, when we're online, we'll click on a film to watch it because we're interested. That's mm. what that is for. It's just, uh, you know, to make people aware and hopefully entertain them so they enjoy so it. So it's a brand awareness is part of the policy behind all this um, type of thing as well to to maybe start a conversation or to maybe yeah. pique someone's interest where they hadn't possibly been thinking before. That's that's exactly it. And then to tell a story about so GT eighty six that example we're using. Why do we do those special liveried ones? Well, they look great, but actually that was the first Toyota sports car in the UK lineup for a while. So you may not have considered it a Toyota. You look at GT86, then suddenly you're thinking about, you know, the IMSA GTU cars and you realize that, you know, we were racing there in the 70s and we have a, an incredible racing heritage uh, in various areas. So one story laid on top of another laid on top of another creates a feeling. So it's an interesting car. It looks great. sounds great. It looks good on the film. They seem to know what they're doing when it comes to making sports cars. Hopefully... What you do at that point is talk to one of our guys online and, uh, you know, eventually go and buy one. That's the plan. This is what it all comes down to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Okay, sorry, I, I, I've taken you off on another tangent again. <laughs> Tangents are good. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's the whole point of the conversation uh, from my point of view, very selfish point of view, is uh, I get to ask these questions because I, I don't know the answers and I'm really interested to know and hopefully the listeners get to learn something as well. Apart from they get to listen to the interesting people, but they get to a better appreciation what what makes up the motoring world and what allows cars to be put on the road. It, there's there's such a wide thing that goes on in the, and I'm using air quotes, which I'll hurt myself later for doing, but into the business of uh, the motoring world. It's there's, there's so many things happen that people don't see or don't appreciate or don't think is associated because at the end of the day, for a manufacturer, it is a business. So there is all the businessy things that have to go on. And then there's media. So then there's media things that have to go on. And then there's, you know, really interested fans. And then there's all sorts of things. And it's part of the reason behind this, uh, this podcast review is to, is to help people appreciate how much effort goes in from so many different people and such a wide variety of society uh, and that helps it make it so such great fun and why we're all interested in it. You know, you're, you're right. It's one of the things that's really opened my eyes since I came into this industry is the amount of work and effort and time that goes into putting a car on the road and into a showroom. Uh, mm. 
I spent some time uh, month before last, I think, talking to the chief engineer of the new Toyota CHR uh, uh, in Spain, and that's been a that's been a ten year burn, really, uh, from sort of rough concept to, to getting into the the showroom, and the amount of effort, staggering, the amount of effort that goes into every little bit of it, and sort of you know, the internal battles and the you know, uh, the arguments between different bits of the business, and this is the same with any car manufacturer, uh, and trying to keep it true to its vision. And just tiny things. He told me at one point that uh, they tested the car here in the UK quite a lot because our roads are so bad, would you believe? Um, so that's why they bought it, they bought it here. <laughs> and the chief engineer, and obviously you'll understand, chief engineers in our world are hugely important, influential people, you know, massively mm. important in the car company. Um he bought it back from the UK after I think the fourth time it had been here. And we were getting quite close to, to signing off the tooling in the factory to build the car. Yeah. Uh, and that is a, you know, that is a tablet of stone in this world. Yeah, yeah. You do not miss that deadline because the costs are frightening. And he said, I'm not happy. He said, it's, it's 5% short in handling on those kind of roads and it could be better. And the platform's good enough to make it better. And I'm going to redo this bit of the suspension. And there are fireworks and goodness knows what. But he stuck to his guns and he did it. And he was telling me this over dinner, and I just thought the amount of money and you know person hours and stress and planning that behind all of that. When he said, "Actually, let's just stop for two weeks and change this," you know, you think, "Goodness me, it's it's huge. It's absolutely huge." Yeah. But please, yeah. you know, interesting to begin to see from the inside. So, um, how late in the process? would you and your team get to know about a vehicle um, and then start to plan ahead for, for the launches and things like that? Uh, well, if you ask me specifics, I don't know about anything, obviously, Andrew. Uh, no, no, no. I'm just, uh, this is all general terms. No, general I'm terms. Um, uh, pretty early, <laughs> So um, probably, certainly at long before concept stage, uh, various geographies would be involved in, in the early stages. In terms of getting actively involved, I would think probably we'll come in maybe five or six months before a concept version is uh, unveiled at a show. Okay. That's, so if you look at the, uh, the Lexus UX concept from the Paris Motor Show, uh, which was unveiled in, I want to say, September, that was Paris, wasn't it? Um, our team became involved in that probably in January this year, so seven and a bit months before, mm-hmm. uh, as would have the equivalent teams from other European um, uh, geographies. Lightly involved at first, more heavily involved nearer the time, and then that involvement becomes more and more and more intense the closer you get to the event. So we are then producing materials for our own media audiences here in the UK, which will be different quite aside from language to those in France or Russia or, uh, you know, anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Sony is different. Um, use of language is different. Requirements of imagery are different. We're then probably talking to media who want to know more than we're allowed to tell them. So we're trying to be helpful. <laughs> That's what they should. But we're trying to be helpful. We're trying not to give anything away and get fired. But at the same time, we <laughs> yes. say no. Um, so that balance is being struck. Meanwhile, we're working out who we need to take, who needs to see it, who will benefit from going. What are we going to say about it on the day? When the covers come off, there will have been weeks of work. So when 
people from Toyota, uh, from Lexus talk about that car, that would have, you know, that what they say will have been written for them at one level. Mm-hmm. In other cases, it won't have been. So uh, with UX, media wanted to talk to the designers. We knew they would. We'd made sure they were there. We'd given them a brief briefing and said, you know, you can say anything you want. Be completely honest. It's all cool. Don't talk about future product. That's the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, So huge amounts of work. And when it works beautifully, and, and with UX it did, you know, what you get is lots of images and talk about the thing. Isn't this exciting? Can I build a road version of some sort? They say, you know, um, what will it look like? What does it mean for Lexus? So it's all very, very positive um, uh, and all very helpful, but huge amount of work behind the scenes. You know, occasionally, you know, doesn't, I haven't been involved in one yet that hasn't gone right, but I'm sure I will be, happens to all of us. But certainly colleagues from elsewhere have told me at various dinners and things over the last few months, uh, various horror stories of things going completely wrong, uh, some of which are hilarious, but don't involve us, so I can't repeat them. <laughs> what um, what are you looking for from from a, a launch? What are you looking for f- when um, you open, you know, a, somebody's website who's been out to review it or has, has driven it or watch somebody's video? What what are the key things you're looking for in that? Uh, review all that information that's going out to people? It's an interesting question because I think the things I am looking for will be different to if you were talking to, you're talking to one of the senior executives from from Toyota who wasn't involved in the media side. What they're looking for is a five-star review of everything. That's, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Everything's great. Everything's perfect. Mm. And that's understandable. We see it slightly differently. Um, What we're looking for is first and foremost, accuracy. The, the thing that the only thing that is really upsetting to us is if people go on a launch and get something fundamentally wrong uh, mm-hmm. in the way they judge the car. Uh, it hasn't happened in my time, but you know, again, everybody drops the ball occasionally. Second thing I think we're looking for is fairness. So, has the vehicle been considered fairly? Have people bought any baggage to the way they judge it? How have they judged it compared to its competitors? And have they done so purely on the grounds of the vehicle? Um, mm-hmm which is what we want because the onus is on us to make good cars, right? Um, yeah. We're not expecting, you know, uh, people to say things are, are what they're not. So we'll go about trying to make good cars. We'd like them to be judged fairly and on their own merits. Um, and after that, it's a nice to have. Those are the essentials. Those are the things we really want to see, whatever the result. Frankly, if it's accurate and fair, we can't have any complaints. If the, if the road tester decides they don't particularly like it, they're entitled to that opinion. They're professionals. That's what they do. Back to what we said earlier about independent voices. Well, yeah, I mean, if you if it's written in such a way that says I don't like it because of X, Y, and Z, mm. you can see the you, you've seen the working out, as it were. So yeah. that's that's yes. understandable and that's um, fair. I mean, that's something that uh, Alan and I have, have we've got as part of our how we feel we should be doing the Merchant Podcast is that we we try to be uh fair we try to um be truthful you know that's a that's a big cornerstone to us we're not we're not prepared to talk about rumor and stuff like that um and uh if we say an opinion on something we feel we could back it up as well we will we will show our workings out because it, at that point, everyone can see where you are coming from, and that is that has to, that that can only be fair. It's only fair to a manufacturer, and it's only fair to listeners at that point, or readers, or viewers. 
I think that's, that's absolutely it. I mean, just occasionally, you know, I, I picked up the phone to somebody and said, hey, look, I read your thing, and fair enough, I didn't understand this. You said this, and, and I don't recognize that. And just help me understand, because I have to explain internally why that bit there is there. And in every case, people have had a perfectly good rational explanation for it. Um, so we haven't suffered from, from what's known in the car industry as, as Ferrariitis, which you know, stems from the days where people would make a supercar uh, and it would get you know, 7 out of 10, not because it was a 7 out of 10 car, but because it wasn't red and it didn't have a prancing horse on. Um, <laughs> and I think you know, cheerfully, even that is now gone, thanks to a plethora of fabulous cars from, from other manufacturers. But um, we don't suffer from that too much, I think. I think people are generally pretty fair to us. There are times when um, times when I think they could be nicer, but what it does mean is when they are nice, and if you look at the, the reviews for the Lexus LC, which is a hugely important car for Lexus, the reviews of that have been fabulous. And the fact that historically we've had two or three reviews of things over the last you know, 10, 15 years that weren't so good, mm. that's what makes the, the good ones work because you know people reading that outside the industry, potential customers, they remember that too. You know? yeah. So... Uh, a world in which everything was always great all the time wouldn't work for anybody. Well, it's, the, it's like the Amazon reviews. If it, you know, you you yes. tend to ignore the five stars and you ignore the one stars because they've got their vested interests in either end. You're looking not. That I'm saying that you you want a, a three star review, but the three stars someone's put thought behind that. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it, it it's I'm I want to listen to a, when someone's put thought behind what their review is and why they've said what they've said. And as a, as a consumer, that's that's what I'm really interested at. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, you know, occasionally people absolutely love things. Occasionally they absolutely hate them. Uh, but in every case, I think we're very lucky um, in this country. And it's something that isn't obvious, I think, sometimes outside the industry is that the UK media is seen outside the UK by automotive companies as being quite critical, you know, uh, and difficult compared to one or two others. What, us Brits? Never. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting perception because it's not critical or difficult. I think what it is is fiercely independent and generally fair. So if you have a bad car and you launch it in the most fabulous place on earth and fly UK motoring journalists there in first class with hot and cold running caviar, they will still say it's a bad car. You cannot charm them or, you know, um, or kind of dazzle them into saying something they don't believe is true. And long may that continue. Um, so we have a, a difficult media in the eyes of some of our, our colleagues from elsewhere. But the great joy of that, again, is, boy, do they have a voice that travels. So the UK automotive media is international, you know, and without picking titles out, but we all know what they are. You know, there's a number of magazines and newspapers in the UK whose reviews and views on cars travel all over the world. Uh, you know, and there's a reason for that because people recognise that independence. Yeah. Right. Um, I want to start to round this up because I'm, I'm very conscious of taking up your time um, during the working day. And uh, thank you very much for coming on once again. But I'm going to ask and some I, quick I fire questions. I would like questions. to point out, in case my boss is listening, that I did get in early this morning in order to clear time for this. <laughs> well, then I really better hurry up then because we're going to go over in a minute. <laughs> um, but the problem is, you see, you keep answering in an interesting way. So I have to, I, I've got follow up questions. It's, you know. I'll, I'll put a stop to that. 
<laughs> so this is the quick fire section where, and I am going to once again talk to myself here. I ask the question, you answer the question, and then I'll ask the next question and not make comments. But you never know. We we may come across a week where I actually manage to do that. So. <laughs> Let's give it another whirl. But here we go with the first one, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world? Um the uncertainty of its future. Mm, that's interesting. Okay, what... Um, sorry, did I ask excites or worries you there? Uh, you said excites. Yeah, okay, good. Sorry. Oh, dear. Um, what currently worries you then about the motoring world? The uncertainty of its future. <laughs> that's what got me confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Paxman, you've been, you know, don't be worried. Um <laughs> Okay, what's been your favourite car to drive, and why was that? Oh, hell. Um, do you know what? It was a rubbish Fiat Strada, uh, and the reason for that is it wasn't a particularly good car, you know, but it, like all these things, it's about time and place. It's where I was in my life as a teenager when I had it, the kind of things I was doing, the adventures I had in it with my friends. I have nothing but loving memories of that car, which I badly broke in the end. Okay, then what's been your least favourite car to drive and why was that? Uh, it was a Jaguar, I'm ashamed to say, and I, I like Jaguar, I always have done, uh, but um, I just bought the world's least reliable uh, sovereign back in the day when I couldn't afford to be running a sovereign. I just wanted uh, to waft about in something with double glazing mm -hmm. and I couldn't afford to, yeah, I basically bankrupted myself and my then girlfriend kept threatening to storm off. She's now my wife, so thank God she didn't. But um, uh, yeah, it was that Jag. Not all Jags, just that one. Okay. Uh, what car would you like to own next? I would like a Land Cruiser Troopy, if you know what that is. Not off the top of my head, no. Uh, uh, a special body, body cruiser they uh, made for the Australian military originally. Um, we never sold them in the UK. They are ace. I'm a massive Land Cruiser fan anyway, um, and that's, that's what I want. I'm trying to think of a practical excuse why we need one on the press fleet here, bearing in mind they were never sold in the UK. So if any of your listeners have got ideas for that excuse, please write to the usual address. Yes, absolutely. Let's, see, let's, let's help a man out. Uh, okay. What's your favourite road to drive on? Uh, Route Napoleon, I think. Um, that's both cars and bikes. It's because of the cliffs, because of the, the reverberation of the noise. So if you're in or on something fairly, uh, fairly rorty, the soundtrack is phenomenal. Tunnel run without it being a tunnel. Yeah, very long tunnel run with high walls uh, and, yeah, glorious. Excellent. What is the most pointless optional extra you've experienced? <laughs> um. Well, that's, uh, mm, uh, I think it was my, uh, what would Johnny Cash do window sticker in my old Land Rover Defender. <laughs> I, it pointed inwards to constantly remind you to ask yourself that question at all times. <laughs> okay. Uh, after chatting with you, who do you think I should talk to next? Oh, gosh, that's a really tough question. You know, I think you almost answered it yourself earlier. I think you should pick one of the editors. Um, 
uh, and I, I mean, there are a number of names to, to choose, uh, but, you know, Steve Fowler and Jim Holder and Phil McNulty and you know, those guys, um, I think they're in a fascinating place at the moment and they're managing to navigate it brilliantly. Uh, I would love to hear at length how they're doing that. So that would be my choice. Okay. Excellent. Um, bef- uh, just before we wrap up then, so what are the best ways for people to follow you? Um, oh, uh, obviously they will know that they've, they've heard of your, your history and the lengths that you go to uh, in think, PR world. Um, Twitter is the best one. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Automo Clark. Um, so, uh, that's probably the, the best place to go. Um, or, uh, the other thing I suppose, I don't use Instagram. I, I, I gave up using it and I've just dipped my toe into drive tribe. Um, uh, and uh, we'll see what becomes of that. But Twitter is the best place to go. Okay. I will have uh, the link to that in the show notes. And um, thank you once again for coming on. And hopefully uh, we can get you on again another time because it's been a fascinating chat. So fascinating. I haven't asked you about your car history, uh, which which is um, which I am I am guessing is going to uh, bring back many memories, maybe some good. Just listening to the couple of answers you gave, um, so that that would be uh, that would be wonderful to to do that again at a, a time further down the line. Um, Always happy, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure. Thank maybe you. in a year's time when you uh, need another hour away from the uh, office. <laughs> Thank God that went there. I thought you were going to say need another job. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Uh, it's been a pleasure. Really, really happy to have come on and um, uh, always happy to help, of course. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks once again to James for coming on Rearview and chatting with me. I hope you all found that as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone who you think we should talk to on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. I'd like to ask you that are listening, if you could go leave a rating and review, preferably on iTunes. It really makes a big difference to the show, as well as makes me very happy and warm feeling on the inside. So until next time, that was James Clark. I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.